Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the K-Life podcast. I'm your host, Sine Parikh, and in this podcast, we will be going over topics on high school, the college admissions process, and topics related to that. We will be bringing in, bringing in guests who are experts in those fields. So my first guest is Sang Park, who is the owner of Park Academy. Park Academy offers a variety of resources such as SAT prep, ACT prep, and other academic tutoring, college counseling, college application writing, and leadership class. Mr. Park himself has, ex had, has had experience working with admissions officers from Harvard, UC Berkeley, UC Irvine, and other colleges. On top of that, Mr. Park has also been a mentor at Carmont Learning since the very beginning, and he has been very involved in the organization. So thank you, Mr. Park, for coming on the podcast. And would you like to add anything to that? Yes, thank you very much for the introduction today. I'd also like to add that Power Academy offers free college counseling, free analysis on SAT ACT, free SAT ACT strategy book, free booklet that contains college admissions process information, as well as previous year's college application essay questions from 100 different schools. Okay, that sounds really good. And also, by the way, um, Mr. Park's contact information will all be in the description. So, Let's get into the questions. So, Mr. Park, um, around what greater age should you start? Should one start preparing for the SAT or ACT? So, I would say that the first, depending on the student. But if you're aiming for a perfect score and you want to be sure of it, um, some of my students start as early as eighth grade. However, I would like to uh, tell you that the SAT ACT. Uh, covers the 10th grade level. So, so if you want to start after covering all the topics, then you can start um, after 10th grade or during the 10th grade summer. Uh, I think taking it in the 11th grade summer or during 11th grade could be a little too late because 11th grade is one of the busiest year. And also, um, I don't think you should wait another year when you already learned everything in 10th grade. However, for some of my uh, excellent students who have very strong fundamentals by the time they're 11th grade, they only need about four to eight sessions for me to get a score very close to perfect score. And uh, however, I, don't, I wouldn't wanna take, take that chance. So at the very least, you should get an analysis on your weaknesses to see how you should plan. And like I mentioned before, I offer that for free. So um, you can plan for the next three, four years or the next two years, or if you just wanna see where you're at, um, we also have a real test, so I can give that to you as well. Okay, that sounds really cool. So most people start at around 10th grade but like some people even start at eighth grade, right? Yes, I think it also, okay. it has to do with um, how ambitious the parents are. If they absolutely think that their should, child should get a 1600, then some students do start as early as eighth grade. And also um, at the very least, getting the analysis at eighth grade uh, lets us know where the child is at because if the child is 
lacking the fundamentals uh, way, way below where they should be at, then they should be working towards building their fundamental at the eighth grade, or they will not have a very low chance of getting a perfect score by the time that they reach 10th grade or 11th grade. So getting an analysis is a good idea in eighth grade, but if you're in a good track and you want to start in after 10th grade, that's fine as well. I would say it depends on the students. So the best thing to do is basically uh, just see where you're at in eighth grade uh, and, and then decide how you're going to prepare for the next three years. If, and if you think you're in the right track and if you think your school course is taking you to where you should be at by the time uh, you're in 11th grade, then you don't have to worry about it. But I, I like to at least have all the information for my students or like if it was my child, I would like to have that information early so I could prepare uh, instead of trying to adjust to his or her situation after they hit 11th grade, realizing that it's too late for us to help him get a perfect score. Okay, that sounds really good. Um, what do you think colleges look for in any student, like in high school, mostly? So colleges look for many different factors, but of course the factors that the top elite schools want from the students is also the factors that the uh, some of the less prestigious colleges will look for in a student as well. So most of the colleges, of course, would emphasize or think the academic performance is very important. So. For example, uh, SAT and GPA and strength of curriculum is known to be the most important in most schools, but it depends on the uh, schools. UC schools recently, uh, the court ruled that they can't have SAT or ACT as part of their admissions process, but most of the other private schools still take that into consideration. And the reason why they want to see a student um, have a score is because of something called grade inflation. Um, if you're doing really well in school and you're getting 5.0 GPA, and, but you don't have an SAT score, they, they don't know if you received that 5.0 because the school gives out A's very easily or because you've actually earned that score. So um, some of the top schools, they would do something like take 75% of the students who took SAT and only take 25% of students who didn't take SAT. So if you can do well, it's definitely your advantage to have an SAT score for the top elite schools. But if you're aiming for a certain schools, that's not necessary part of it. So that's only the first part that the colleges look for. Another part that the colleges look for is tenacity, leadership, and demonstration of interest. Um, when I say, or other excellent, extraordinary, extracurricular activities. Of course, some colleges may think very highly of you to have um, a leadership position, such as being a captain of your soccer team or, um, or the president of the ASB representing your school. However, um, if you're aiming for the top elite schools, such as Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Princeton, when they say leadership, they're actually looking for someone who can change the world or make a difference to the world uh, or make a difference to the community 
And if you take a look at some of the UC questions, they even asked, how have you uh, contributed yourself to make a change to your community or your school? So when they say leadership, they don't mean, um, were you the, did you have a leadership position in a club or did you, um, were you the soccer captain? Leadership is something that, are you the type of person who can change the world and what kind of extracurricular activities did you found or did you, um, did you take role in and what kind of impact did you make? Uh, long lasting impact. So that, that's the type of character you want to um, portray to the school. And if you have something to write about that, that would be very, very helpful. Another part that they're looking for is um, dedication. So dedication and tenacity uh, is the same thing. The reason why they look for that is, so tenacity and dedication is basically are the type of person who starts something and not give up. So of course, if you start in your ninth grade um, regarding your community service club, that's much more helpful than someone who started in 11th grade. Part of it is because it does look like that you just made it to get into the school. But another part is that if you created an 11th grade, you, you can't really show your dedication or tenacity. Um, like we don't know if you're the type of person who starts something and doesn't give up. It's too short of a time. So um, you want to have a story where you can tell the college that I'm the person of, type of person who never gives up. And the reason why, it mostly has to do with graduation rate. So if you look at, um, um, let's, let's just take a look at some of, um, some of the UC schools. I mean, like UC schools are great, but of course it's not at the level of Harvard, right? Harvard is like the top elite school. So let's just look at UC Riverside, for example. Uh, let's see what their graduation rate looks like. So their graduation rate looks like um, 92 point, I mean, 72.9%. Um, if you look at, for example, uh, University of California, Irvine, their graduation rate is 87.2%. UCLA, their graduation rate is 91.4%. Do you see how like the graduation rate goes higher the more prestigious the school is? Yeah. Uh, for Harvard, it's over 97%. So yes, Harvard is more prestigious and they're much more difficult school to graduate from, but the graduation rate is a lot higher, which then we can deduce that they're choosing students who are going to graduate in the first place. And if their graduation rate is higher, um, it means that they're retaining all their students, which means that um, uh, in, in those schools, if they, they have a um, lower graduation rate, then that means that they can lose a lot of money. Because um, if you go for only two years and you drop out in the middle, and if there's a lot of students who do that, they have to fill in those classes and that's a problem for them. And also another part has to do with reputation. Uh, like I said, the higher the graduation rate, the better the reputation. So they wanna choose someone who can graduate from the school to begin with. So that's why it's so important to show that you're the type of person who doesn't give up. You, and that's the reason why you have to show dedication and tenacity. Uh, another part that they look for is demonstration of interest. Demonstration of interest is how 
uh, how interested you are in that school, like why that school particularly. This is the reason why I suggest that um, uh, if you think you're you're qualified to get into the schools, you pick and choose some of the schools that you're really interested in, and that you can show why you're interested in that school, as opposed to applying to random colleges with a very generic personal statement. Because if they see that you're very interested in that school and you have a reason to study in that school, they're more likely to choose you. And also, this has to do with uh, repetition and finance. Um, this has to do with a sentence rate, right? So let's just say, for example, Harvard admissions officer um, accepted thousands of students this year, just as an example. And um, only 800 people said they're going to go to that school. Mm -hmm. um, or actually, let's just say 800, 800 out of 1,000 is a pretty good retention rate. So let's just say only 300 people uh, accepted the offer. Uh, and let's just say they only have 500 um, spots available. Uh, they have 500 spots available. Now, now they have like 200 empty spots in their in their school. And that's a pretty big problem for them because they're going to lose a lot of money by not filling in those 200 spots. So you want to show them in any way you can that you're very interested in going to this school and you have to give them a reason why. And one way to do that is of course, uh, like I said, through personal statement, explaining why you're interested in that school particularly and what, why that major and all of that. Uh, and also, if you know more about the school, you can talk about the school as well, right? But another way of showing demonstrative interest is by doing something called um, early decision or early action. Early decision show a lot of interest um, because early decision is a it's almost like a binding contract saying if they uh, if they accept you, then you can't uh, deny their offer. You have to you have to say accept their offer no matter what. So if they say yes, mm -hmm. you have to say yes back. Yeah, I've, I've uh, heard about that. Mm -hmm. So that would show uh, overwhelming amount of interest, which would increase your chances dramatically. I, I have a statistics on that, and usually uh, it's from four to five times more likely that you're going to get into the top early school uh, if you apply as an early decision or restrictive early action. Uh, I'm going to show you, I'm going to tell you what restrictive early action is in a bit as well. Um, and what the difference between that and a regular early action is and why um, one of them show more interest than the other. Uh, and not all schools offer all these options. Some schools, most schools only offer either early decision or early action. But to give you some of the examples, uh, Princeton's regular decision acceptance rate last year was 3.8%, and their early action acceptance rate was 14.8%. Actually, I shouldn't really talk about that before I explain further about the restrictive election, but uh, I'm going to tell you about early decision. Columbia last year accepted 4.3% as a regular decision, and as an early decision, they accepted 15.9%. So that's about four times more. Um, second thing that I want to talk about is early action. Early action is non-binding contract. So if they, even if they say yes to you, you can still say no back to them. So I wouldn't say that shows as much interest as um, early decision, but for this particular schools uh, and the following schools are Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Princeton, 
they have something called restrictive early action, which means that you can only early apply to one of those schools. So if you early apply to Harvard, you cannot early apply to any other school, even if they do offer early action. So like, let's just say um, University of Chicago offers early action. Then um, you can't, if you apply to Harvard, you cannot early apply anywhere else. You can only choose one school. So that shows restrictive early action does show a significant amount of interest. And like a, just like the early decision, um, Princeton regular decision acceptance rate is 3.8%. Their restrictive early action acceptance rate is 14.8%. And for Harvard regular decision 2.8%, their restrictive early action is 14.5%. So that's around like five times more for Harvard, right? Um, for Yale, 4.7% for regular decision and 14.7% for restrictive early action. And Stanford, regular decision 3.35% and restrictive early action is 9.24% last year. Okay. But let's just look at MIT. Mm -hmm. uh, MIT does not offer restrictive early action. They just only offer regular early action. Their regular action acceptance rate is 7.4% as opposed to their regular decision is 7.1%. That's only 0.3% difference. I don't even know if I can prove statistically that it doesn't even make any difference to apply early action. And that's because you're not committing to them by doing uh, early action, uh, unlike the other schools that I mentioned. And for example, some schools such as University of Chicago, which who offers both early action and early decision, they don't tell you uh, what their uh, regular decision or uh, early action and early decision acceptance rate is. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, there is not that much difference between early decision and uh, early action and regular decision in acceptance rate because they don't show that. Um, likewise, Caltech um, have offers early action, but then again, they don't show you um, if there's, if it makes any difference to do early action. Um, so basically, the most important thing is to show interest in that school. And if you were to apply to MIT, I would highly suggest that you um, find out a way to show overwhelming amount of interest in that school. Okay, so that sounds really good. So basically, like, you want to tell, like, the listeners that if they're really interested in any school, they should look into, like, early action or early registration. Yes, restrictive early action or early okay. decision. Um, yeah. If not early action, but the more commitment you can show, the better. Okay. And also, uh, if there's other ways to show the commitment, it would be helpful. Okay, that sounds really good. So and also, I'd like to add that um, some of the schools do also um, think very highly of you if you can show um, state level or higher level of ac I mean, academic or athletic accomplishment or musical accomplishment. Any accomplishment that you can show at a state level or higher. But yes, of course, that is very difficult to do. And that's the reason why I, I explained to you uh, what kind of leadership activities you should be involved in. Okay, so like sports, clubs, you know, like band, orchestra, and leadership. Mm -hmm. Okay, so 
when it comes to standardized testing, what mm -hmm. strategies would you say are the most important and why? So um, I coined the two terms called microstrategy and microstrategy for SAT and ACT testing. Um, and it's really difficult to say what strategy is the most important, but I can tell you uh, because this is a podcast and I can, you guys can only hear my audio. Uh, I can tell you a few tips that could be helpful. Um, so in terms of macro strategy, um, something that I realized is that in the past, they used to penalize you for guessing the wrong answer, but this is, there's no penalty in uh, guessing the wrong answer. So of course, everyone should guess every question, right? Yeah. Uh, if you if, and never leave anything blank, right? But if I were to tell you that, then you guys might be like, oh, like, that's pretty obvious. Like, we all knew that we should leave anything blank. But uh, I'm, what, my, what I'm about to tell you right now is not that simple. What I want to tell you right now is that um, because there is no penalty for guessing, now, now um, the value of guessing is a fourth of a point. Before, it was the expected value was zero, which means in the average, if you keep guessing, it wouldn't benefit you to guess. But now it does. And uh, what... What that means is that um, if, you, if you look through the whole test, this is where the macro strategy comes from. Macro strategy is studying the whole test and seeing how you can take advantage of the system. If you look at the whole test, you see that there's a, a free response questions. And free response questions, if you leave it blank, it has almost no value. So if you work in the um, um, uh, chronological order, if you look from like number one to 20 in that order, and you run out of time, um, the last four questions that you're left with has no value because you can't guess on them. Uh, so those, mm -hmm. those, uh, those questions, if you run out of time, has zero value. Well, while the multiple choice questions have one fourth of a value theoretically because um, you have a one fourth of a chance of getting it right, right? So if you're a slow test taker, I would suggest that you uh, approach the free response questions first and then come back to the uh, uh, multiple choice. And if you run out of time, you, you can still guess and uh, have one fourth of a chance at getting the answer right, as opposed to running out of time in the free response question, leaving you no choice but to leave it blank. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, a uh, micro strategy, an example of a micro strategy I wanna share with you is that uh, in the writing section, um, there can only be one right answer. If, if there's an answer choice A, B, C, and D, it's not a check. You can't check all that apply. It's like you choose one answer and th that's it. So mm -hmm. what that means is that if the answer choice A and B means the exact same thing, since only one answer can be correct, if A is correct, then B also must be correct because they mean the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. So if you see that there's two answer choices that mean the same thing, but in different wording, then they're both wrong. So you can safely cross that out and choose from the other to answer choice. Does that make sense? Yeah, kind of like a process of elimination, but since, but you're eliminating them because they're sim like the, they're like similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yes, but sometimes uh, you have to know for sure that they're the same thing because like some students uh, get confused between however and but. Um, however can only be used in the beginning of the sentence while the um, word but is coordinated conjunction that can be used in between sentences, right? So mm -hmm. even though they mean the same thing, uh, you can't, 
it, it's not the same thing. So you, you have to know the subtle differences uh, and study the test really well. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. And, you know, I think nowadays in like high school, especially like mm -hmm. test dating, test taking strategies are really important. Like if you're good at taking tests, like mm -hmm. you'll do good in the class, like you'll get a good grade. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would agree with that. Um, and, and I think that is the reason why they also look very deeply into your extracurricular activities mm -hmm. because they want to see your uh, learning experience outside of school. Um, I, I think a true uh, education comes from students learning um, from outside experiences and being able to apply what they learned and having a curiosity for learning as opposed to just memorizing the answer and, and knowing how to answer the test. But, um, but unfortunately, they, they test you on your ability to test well. So mm -hmm. you would have to master the skill along with um, being able to demonstrate that you're, uh, you're an educator beyond that. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're, you're a student beyond that, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you, Mr. Park, for coming on this episode of the podcast. Um, once again, to all the listeners, um, Mr. Park's information will be in the description. Then also, um, our brand new Instagram for the podcast will also be in the description, which is K underscore um, life podcast. And also, if you have any questions, feel free to email Mr. Park. Or you can also email info at karmontlearning.org, which is Karmont Learning's email, and that will also be in the description. So thank, thank you, you very Mr. much, Thank mm -hmm. you.